Testing, testing. All right. Hello, church. Good morning. I um, have to uh, just share two brief things with you. We'll pray and then we'll get to the Word of God, okay? Uh, the very first one, last time we were here, we had some uh, suggestions and things like that. We had like a little town hall meeting, if you guys remember. If you were not here, I encourage you to, to email me. Uh, my email address is in the back of the bulletin. The elders and I are going to get together and see how it is that this church can move forward and really represent the body of Christ not only with each other, but also with the community out there. So whatever the question was, what do you feel the body of Christ ought to be doing if we're really the body of Christ? So we've gotten some suggestions, and I want to let you know that that hasn't been forgotten or tossed aside. We're taking this very serious, but we're going to get together and come back to the drawing board and prayerfully ask God for direction as to where we're headed as a church. So I want to encourage you to do that. I wanted to just give you a heads up with that. The second thing that I wanted to share with you is that starting in June, I'm going to be pastoring a third church. However, it's not going to be affecting Tallahassee. Uh, It's actually going to be affecting Crawfordville. Crawfordville, they're going to be swapping their services at 930 in the morning, a couple of Sabbaths a month. So I'm going to go preach there and then come join you over here for divine worship. What's going to happen as we start is that I'm going to be Typically, with a normal schedule, now we got some vacations and some events that are coming up throughout the summer, but I'm going to be two Sabbaths in Crawfordville, three Sabbaths here, and one in Perry. So essentially, I'm going to be here more frequent, but not with you for Sabbath school because I'm going to be over there during the Sabbath school time. So you'll see me, but won't see me. Um, As far as being present here, won't affect much, but do understand now I'm going to have like board meetings and nominating committee meetings and all that fun stuff that I enjoy, that I join ministry to do, you know, yeah, all that, all that other stuff. But I do wanted to, to share that with you as a congregation. That's going to be happening in June. I ask you that you continue to, to keep my family and I in prayer, especially with Perry being a little bit further out as well. Keep the congregation in prayer there too. It's a wonderful new family and my wife and I and the kids, we are excited to, to uh, be able to uh, add more people to our family already. So, so it's very, very exciting. So keep us in prayer. With that being said, any questions about where we're headed as a church or about what I'm going to be doing starting in June, talk to me. Call me. You have my cell phone. You have my email. Let me know, and I'll be more than happy to address any questions or concerns that you may have. With that being said, let's call upon the Lord this morning as we pray. Father God, we love you so much, and as we're about to get to today's message, as always, I ask that you be the one speaking in our eye, because there's nothing here that I bring, and I can only cling to the blood of the cross of Calvary. So Lord, anoint my lips, and as always, I ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit upon my brothers and sisters here, so that as we read your scriptures, as we share the message, that our hearts can be open and receptive to your word. Pour out your spirit right here into this place. It is my prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let everyone here say amen. I want to invite you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And 
just work your way there. I'll, I'll let you know the verse in a moment. I just want you to have it. And I want to share with you the story that I read that inspired the sermon title for today. So you're going to go to 2 Corinthians 3 and hold it right there. And while you're making your way there, let me tell you the story that um, inspired this title, The Telescope. I read a story about a man a long time ago who was really fascinated with the stars. He would go in his backyard and he would just stare at the beauty and he would sit there wondering, saying, I wish that I could see better so that I could see closer and really see more details of this glorious sky. I mean, have you ever looked at the sky at nighttime? I'm spoiled here in Tallahassee. Growing up in New Jersey, Camden, New Jersey, with all of the pollution and everything else, you really don't see the stars at nighttime. You know, no, when, when I go to countryside, less polluted areas, I, I'm like, oh, look at all of that. I mean, so, so imagine that he was in a clear place where you could actually see the stars, unlike Camden, New Jersey, and, and you're seeing all of this beauty, but he is wishing and desiring that he's able to see further. And every day he would go out there and he would look. He was an avid star glazer. He would just glaze at the stars and look on. And he would, he would just, just, just gaze at them. And so here's what happens. For his birthday, he received a precision telescope. He got the telescope, he took it out of the box, he saw how beautiful and shiny it was, he cleaned it all up, and he placed it on the mantle. And every time guests would come over, he would show off his precision telescope, how beautiful and pretty and shiny it was. It was just there, gorgeous. He would still go day after day outside and look at the stars at night, wishing that there was some way that he could see more clear. And yet, at every party, he made it a point to entertain and show everybody, look, the telescope right there. And for many years, he did this. And many years later, he would still show off the shiny telescope. And for many years, he would gaze at the stars and say, if only I could see closer. You see, he looked at the telescope but didn't look through the telescope. He saw the, the, the telescope as an end and not the beginning of seeing a world never seen before. And so I like that story because as, as silly as it may seem at times, us as Christians, us as members of this church, we are probably sillier than this man. Because when we look at what we hold, the biblical truths that are in our hand, it is something that we just point to. It is something that we just look at rather than look through. It is something that we have up on the mantle and we really don't understand what is the biblical truths that we hold in our hands together. Our doctrines in this church are phenomenal. They are precise. They are shiny. They are intricate. And yet, we have it sitting up somewhere. And we really look at them as an end rather than a means to an end or the beginning of something wonderful and something amazing. We have to take the doctrines that we have in our church off the mantle and begin to really see the glory of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And when you have it, say amen. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Here's what it says. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror 
the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Are we really beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of God? You know, if we look through our doctrines, we will get to see the glory of God. Now, we have to understand something, and I want to share with you. I'm going to read briefly a two-paragraph story, very briefly, um, because I, I... for time purposes, I'm just going to read it rather than retell it because I get sidetracked like I'm doing right now when I'm telling you why I'm going to read instead of retelling it. But I will share with you the story from a pastor. He says the following. Here's the pastor, not me. He says, one evening I was scheduled to begin a new Bible study with a lovely non-Adventist family of four. As pastor of the church, I chose to take along one of my well-grounded church members for training. All went well for the first five sessions. After the sixth lesson, the wife retreated to her kitchen and returned with a tray of homemade cakes and four cups of coffee. She had obviously spent considerable time preparing these refreshments as a token of her appreciation for the wonderful truths she was learning. When my fellow church members spy the coffee, he immediately launched into her in a detailed lecture on the evils of caffeine. The wife's smile turned into a look of horror, having committed such a dreadful blunder, and she soon slunk back to her kitchen, ashamed. When we returned to the car, I brimmed with what could barely be called righteous indignation and said, don't ever act that way again. Your timing is awful, I fume. But as I was just trying to witness to the truth, he replied, I then felt bad that as a pastor, I had apparently failed to make it clear that people are more important than information. The pastor tells a story that that night he sat at home wondering what could have happened, what could have been, and he asked these questions. Where could this normally pleasant Adventist have gotten the idea that it is okay to stump all over someone's emotion in order to uphold truth? And then the next question he asks, how had a church member become so knowledgeable about Bible facts and so ignorant about love? And you see, here's what happens. What happens is that our families, as we grew up, Back in the day, we worked together, we labored together, we entered the family business. If we're all the Smiths, we were all the Smiths. If my daddy was a glassmaker, I'm a glassmaker. You know, whatever, we were all in business together. The relationship thing was there, and we all had some form of foundation. Our focus was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that was what was sufficient at the time. And we had our doctrines and we had our truth, our doctrines and our truth. And then somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, we we got so bad that, listen to this quote from 1890 from the Review and Herald, March uh, 1890 Review and Herald. Look what it says. You should preach the law as a people. We have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Geboa that had neither dew nor rain. We must preach Christ in the law, and there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. And so what it's saying that we got concerned with law, law, doctrine, doctrine, and we forgot all about Christ, and we were all dried up. But if he preached Christ through the law, then that's a whole different story. And so during the 1969-1970, there was a revival that was, that was taking place. This is now almost, you know, uh, 67, 80 years later. 
From this case, we're suddenly in college campuses who were saying Christ Jesus. And we came up with this idea that we had to somehow preach Christ first and then the doctrines. And that created a split among the churches where doctrine, Christ, Christ, doctrine, doctrine, Christ, Christ. And suddenly the split went that way. But it's not how it works. The two are indissolubly linked together. They're part of a marriage. And Christ was the very first one to say that. He says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's the one that put all of these things together. Keep your finger in, first, in Corinthians and go with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 36. But keep your finger in Corinthians because we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians this time. And when you have it, say amen. Matthew 22, beginning on verse 36. And here you see an amazing combination. Look what it says here. Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. See, they're asking him about the law. They're asking him about the commandments. They're asking him about doctrine. And he says, love God with your all. And then he continues. This is the first and great commandment, verse 38. And then verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. On these two hang everything. Because you see, if I love God, why would I have any other gods before him? If I love my neighbor, why would I lie to him, steal from him, and cheat on my wife if I love my neighbor? And again, some of you cheat because you love your neighbor too much. But that's neither here nor there. The idea is that if I love my neighbor, ask yourself. Okay, and, and so the idea is that you see these two together, on these hang everything. Love is the key. Now let me take you to 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter of love. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going, we're going to read verse 2, and when you have it, say amen. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning on verse 2, and when you have it, say amen. 1 Corinthians 13, it says the following. And listen carefully. I'm going to read one verse only, and I'm going to read it very slowly. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand some of the mysteries. What does it say there? Understand all all the mysteries and all the knowledge. And though I have all the faith in the world so that I could remove mountains but have not love. I am what? I am nothing. I cringe at these words. Have you ever met someone who knows it all? I have to tell you, I struggle because I study heavily the Bible. And if you ask me next week, what was the Bible verse that I used today? I may not remember. Half of the time, I will forget. My memory is all over the place. I'm already thinking about next week's message, never mind last week's message, and I can't recall that verse. And so the, it's all over. And, but but I, I met people that they just know their Bible better than I do. And I did the whole school thing. And they just know it. But what profits them if they know it all and yet they have no love? They are absolutely nothing. I shudder at that. Imagine that. If you know everything, have all the faith to move mountains, and you have no love, you are a big, fat 
Zero. Nothing. Love is the key. Listen to these two churches and ask yourself, which of these two churches you think is the most pleasing to God? The Antarctica church teaches no biblical error at all. All of his doctrines are correct. The only problem is that the church membership is split down the middle over some peripheral issue. One hall is not talking to the other half and the atmosphere is cold. The Bahama church teaches baptism by sprinkling, worships on Sunday, is all mixed up on the end time prophecies, but has taken Jesus' call to love very seriously and demonstrate that love day in and day out. The church membership is united and is a source of help and wholeness for hundreds of people in the community. The atmosphere is warm and accepting. Now, don't need to answer me, but which one do you think is more pleasing to God? And now, I know some of you who are about to stone me when I walk out of this church are thinking, yeah, but hold up, are you trying to say that love is more important than doctrine? And the answer is yes. Oh, wait, wait, are you trying to say that we should be in the loving church that teaches stuff wrong rather than the right church that teaches stuff correct? The answer is no. You see, we have a lot to learn for that church that has sold doctrinally wrong, but has really understood the love concept. There's good reasons for us to remain in a church that even though it doesn't quite have the love yet, if it teaches biblical truth, it has the greatest chances. The right scriptural teachings enable us to form the most complete concept of who God is. Correct biblical teaching gives the fullest picture of what true love is all about. And the church that has the most truth has the greatest potential for portraying the most love. So no, I am not saying that we need to leave a least loving church for a more loving church. We need to follow the word of God. But what I'm saying is that if we want to please God, we need to correct something. What I'm saying is that God is most interested, not in our knowledge, but the kind of people that our knowledge is turning us into. What I'm saying is that if you know all of the 66 books of the Bible and haven't memorized, if you know the 28 Adventist beliefs and you find yourself frequently being harsh, opinionated, critical, negative, argumentative, independent, stubborn, or judgmental, then you most likely have missed the point. Because if that truth ain't changing you, then something ain't right. This is how we wind up in church with members who are factual giants but experiential pygmies. Members who are doctrinal geniuses but relational dummies. Once you have looked through the telescope, once you see the incredible glories belong, you can no longer be satisfied with debating or arguing over some piece of the telescope stand or the lens adjuster. Because you're seeing the whole picture and you're looking through them. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? Our doctrines are phenomenal, but we're looking at them. We beat up people with them rather than looking through them and really see the glory of God manifested in it. How good is the truth if you have no love? According to the Bible, you are nothing. Therefore, as we have difficulties demonstrating the love of God, we need to truly look through the scriptures and the doctrines. As Adventists, as these denominations, and some guests might be here, we have some beliefs that we outline that other churches may or may not necessarily publish. And for example, we believe that Jesus Christ is God, is the Son of God, and died for us. There are some churches that don't accept Jesus, only as a prophet, and they only do Jehovah minus the Son. 
There are some people that don't follow the Holy Spirit, and they say that the Holy Spirit really is another form of God, and it's just God, but they neglect the works of the Holy Spirit. There are other people that want nothing to do with the Father because he seems so mean in the Old Testament that we'd rather have lovey-dovey Jesus in the New Testament. And so as Adventists, we put a list of things that we say, look, we believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in them all, and then we have, that's three out of the 28 that we stand for. We believe in the resurrection, and we believe in the second coming of Christ. And many people don't believe that. So we have 28 things, and if you're not familiar with them, I want to encourage you to take the dust out of that book and, and go ahead and start looking through it and experience Christ through them. It is time that we stop keeping that telescope in the mantle and squinting in our backyards and wondering why we come to church and it's so full of hate and love and everything else and bigotry. Why? Because we have failed to look through Christ, through the doctrines, in the Word of God. It is time to take them off the mantle. It is time to do that. Gospel Workers, 1915, page 107. Of all the people in the world, reformers should be the most unselfish, the most kind, the most courteous. See, Doctrines are like tools. Now, tools can be used to build something beautiful, build a house, or tools can be used to destroy and demolish. How are we using our doctrines? Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And when you have it, say amen. You see, the doctrines are God's means to enable us to love him and others. And so it is absurd to argue about the doctrines. This is why it's so tragic when churches split down the middle over a doctrine. Why can we come in love and discuss a particular point? Why can we come together in love and say, hey, we've learned something and let us study. But to actually beat up someone because of love, uh, because of a doctrine, that is ridiculous. I saw an elder of the church once punch the pastor in the face because they couldn't agree on the color of the carpet. But pastor, we need this beautiful, this beautiful carpet for people. It needs to be this color so that they feel that we care about them. What is wrong with you? What? It's almost as silly when we sing in our church, I got the joy, 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 and we look miserable. Do you really got the joy? I mean, and, and so that's what doctrines are about. 2 Timothy 3.16, does everybody have it? All right, it says the following, all scripture, how much? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Go with me to the scripture reading for today, 2 Timothy 2.1. 2 Timothy 2.1, scripture reading for today. And when you have it, say amen. 2 Timothy 2.1. I'm sorry, Titus 2.1. Scripture reading for today, Titus 2.1. Thank you. I'm glad somebody's paying attention. <laughs> Titus 2.1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older man be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, that older woman, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things. And so I want you to notice this because the doctrines are a beautiful thing. 
And we are to be courteous, humble, loving individuals. You know, I want to share with you a couple of doctrines, not all of them. We have 28 doctrines that we point out, even though we believe in many things. But I want you to understand something. When we ask people, when we ask Seventh-day Adventists, what is the Adventist church about? Oh, we don't eat pork, we keep the Sabbath, we do this. And, you know, you have a checklist of things of what to do or what not to do. Do you remember the story I shared with you about a year ago when I went to high school and I wasn't eating pork because pork was bad? You guys remember that story where, you know, I was told that pork was not bad. I told the, told the lunch lady, what is this? She said, pizza. And what is that, turkey club? I says, no, they're meat with turkey. She says, yeah, give me the turkey club. And then I opened it up. Apparently, bacon was invited to the party. And so I said, hey, you know, I can't have this. Can I have the piece instead? She says, you touched it. So you have to put it back. I mean, you can't put it back. You have to keep it, or you could buy a second meal. I said, I only have money for one meal, and we argued back and forth how she lied to me and didn't tell me there was bacon. I specifically asked about me, and then I ended up cursing her out. I get sent to the principal's office, and then in the principal's office, the principal was a nice Jewish lady. She says to me, Dr. Rubens, she says, hey, Joey, so what happened? Why don't you eat all oh, because of pork and the Bible, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, and it is evil? And she says, wow. So your God doesn't want you to eat pork, but he's okay with you cursing out my lunch lady. (laughs) And you see what happens when you have a checklist of do's and don'ts, and you look at what to do, what not to do, rather than why you're doing it or not doing it? When you just look at the doctrines, rather than look through the doctrines, you miss Jesus all over again. And that it's important to look through this. So even though we have 28 main ones that we believe, I want to share with you just a couple of ones as, as, we, as we wind things down for today. Number one, the Sabbath. The Sabbath, according to the scriptures, is the seventh day of the week. Did you know that there's only eight Bible verses in the New Testament that mention the first day of the week and not one of them say that it was changed to Sunday? However, I will tell you something. There's something about the Sabbath that is very unique, and, and sometimes we don't understand this. Do you realize that, technically speaking, there's no difference between one day or another? There's no difference between Saturday or Sunday. Absolutely none. As a matter of fact, retire, get off your daily work routine, and then try to remember which day of the week is it. As a matter of fact, have your kids stay home from school because now it's summer vacation, and you're saying, is today Monday or is it Tuesday? Has that ever happened to you? Or have you noticed that it's sunnier on Sabbath? That somehow the weather is just perfect on Saturdays and then then Sunday is all rainy and uglier. Is it a nicer day on Saturdays than what it is on Sunday? From one day to the other, there's absolutely no distinction. However, here's why the Sabbath is so important. Even though you can't tell the difference between one day or the other, God specifically made an appointment for you and him on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a memory of creation. The Sabbath day is the day that God set aside. And so imagine, I've been waiting for this girl, you know, high school guy, nervous. And she says, yes, let's go out. When can we go out? She says, sure, let's do it on Saturday night. And I say, you know what, I'll show up on Sunday. How does that work out for the future of that relationship? I like the girl, want to have a day with the girl. Why won't I show up when the girl said 
I love my God. I want to grow in Christ. Why won't I spend time on the day that he said? You see, the only thing that makes a difference is that God says so. He said it, and that settles it. He is the ultimate authority in my life. I do not relate to him as an equal. I do not relate to him in my own terms. I relate to him as one who always knows what is best for my life. He is Lord. And the Sabbath is a day that he set aside for you and I to spend time with him. A God who is genuinely interested in your life, who places your tears in his bottle, who knows what keeps you up at night, who promises to be with you and to never leave you nor forsake you. And that's why the Sabbath is so important. One, because he set the date. And two, because it demonstrates that I truly rely on him and I trust him because God says so. Does that make sense? What about baptism, baptism by immersion? That's one of our doctrines. Some churches, they do a little sprinkling. They do oil. They do uh, rose petals. They do salt. They do wine, which some of you might enjoy that. You know, they, they do all kinds of things like that. But we do baptism by immersion. Why is this important doing it the right way? Because it teaches us that by being in immersion, we demonstrated that earlier. You got to do that, Lynn. By the way, Lynn, new member of the church, amen. You got to do that. You know, it symbolizes that the old you is dying and the new you is being born in Christ. It demonstrates your dependency. It's not 50-50 between God and I. It's not even 99 99 and 1. It is 100% God, Lord over me, because the old me is dead and the new me is alive only because of him. Do you see the difference? Do you see why this is important? What about the millennium? By the way, if you have no idea what these doctrines are, let's study together. I would love to. In a nutshell, here's what the millennium is. Here's the millennium. The Bible tells us that when Christ comes, that the dead in Christ will rise first. We will meet the Lord in the air. We will go with him. We're going to be in heaven for a thousand years, looking through the books, and then we'll come back after the thousand years, and the wicked will resurrect a second resurrection. And then there's other stuff happening there. Read Revelations chapter 20, 21 and 22 to get all of the full details. Or let me know and we'll study together. But the millennium itself, how is that wonderful? For a thousand years, we're going to look at the books. Why are we going to look at the books? Because we want to find out why is it that the guy that killed me is now in heaven. Lord, you made a mistake here. What's going on here? So we'll get to look through the books to see that whoever belongs in heaven belongs in heaven, and whoever does not, does not. Let's pretend that I baptize you, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grand-grandchildren, and suddenly I don't make it. But Joey, how, I mean, God, how come Joey didn't make it? Well, let's, did you make a mistake? No, let's look at the books. Ah, I see clearly. See, the millennium, that doctrine itself, it shows how much God loves us, that he's allowing us to judge him during his judgment process. That is allowing us to look at him to see whether or not he made a mistake or not on who made it to heaven and who did not. This is the love of God allowing himself to be put in such a vulnerable position because he loves us. What about the state of the dead? We believe that when you die, that your body goes to the ground and that the breath of life goes back to the breath giver. And then those who are, are saved, when Christ comes, then we will rise. Those who are condemned, when he comes the other time after the thousand years, they will rise again and then something else is going to happen there. But isn't that wonderful? This is Christ in there. You see, Christ is not teaching us that suddenly the people that we died are loved ones, the bad ones are in heaven, I mean in hell, burning for eternity. Or the good ones are in heaven. You know what? Let me tell you this. 
This is very serious. The Bible says that in heaven, there's no suffering, there's no pain. If I were to die and I'm in heaven, looking down at my children and they get into a car accident, somebody tries to hurt them violently, would I not be suffering? Or would I just be like, look at this, <laughs> and just because there's no suffering in heaven? Of course not. This is a love story. There's no one looking down and watching the rest of us suffer. There's no one in heaven, none of our family, sitting up there and saying, man, I hope they can make it up here soon. Poor people. It's not how it works. It is a love story in itself. And aren't you glad that, that God is not in cahoots with the devil and, and they're, they're torturing people for eternity in hell? It's not how it works. The Bible teaches it clearly. When you die, your body goes to the ground and the breath of life goes to the breath giver. If we were in heaven, why in the world does the Bible say that the dead in Christ resurrect first? Hey guys, I know we had a good time here, but I need you to hop in the grave and then just come out so we can make a good entrance, you know? Ba, 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 and then go, ah, thank Jesus. I mean, how does that work? It's not like that. This is the gospel message. What about health? We talk about health and some of us get concerned about don't eat this, don't eat that. All it is is that God wants you to live a long lasting life. Is that so bad that he wants you to be healthy? It's not about not eating this or not eating that. There's many of you who don't eat meat because you're vegetarians and you go to McDonald's and eat bread, french fries, and milkshakes. That's a lot worse. I'd rather you go eat a piece of steak than eat a whole bunch of french fries and milkshakes. The idea is health. And so God wants you to live well, to prosper, that your joy and your life may be full. What is wrong with that? This is a clear demonstration of God's love. God seeks us out and God loves us. And so my encouragement to all of you here in the church is as follows. I want to encourage you to really, over the next couple of weeks, explore the doctrines of what we believe in. If we're going to make a difference in this world, if we're going to make a difference among one another, it is time to take the doctrines off the mantle and start looking through them because the doctrines and the scriptures are great for correction and for reproof and they're full of character building. Don't look at them as a rule to smack somebody with, but rather find Jesus through them. Look through the doctrines is my encouragement. It is time that you stop wasting that beautiful telescope and just pointing at how shiny it is. Let us go ahead and pray. Father God, we love you so much. And we thank you for your word. Father God, we ask for forgiveness if we use the doctrines for anything else other than beating up people and creating fights. It is time that we start seeing you through them. It is not first Jesus and then the doctrines. It is not first the doctrines and then Jesus. But it is you, Christ Jesus, who is alive through the doctrines. You are a God that is full of love. That you want us to know exactly what's happening. That you want us to live forever. That you want us to live a healthy life. That you want us to know that you're not a torturer, but a God of mercy and a God of love. That you want us to know, Father God, that you're coming soon to take us home. That you want us to know, Father God, that one day, we're going to be in a place in a new heaven and a new earth that one day we're going to be with you and you will dwell among us and there will be no more suffering no more tears no more dying no more pain no more sorrow father god help us get to know you even better as we search through you through the scriptures and the doctrines May you bless us and keep us and pour out your spirit as we search you even further. You told us that if we seek, we will find. That if we really search for you, you will reveal your glory to us. 
May you bless us and keep us and we look forward to seeing your full glory. And not only that, not just for mental knowledge, but seeing how the knowledge of you creates transformation in our lives. This is my prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let everyone here say, Amen.